Hey guys, Chloe here and welcome to another episode of Fangirl Faves. I am actually pretty tickled and super excited to go over this th- sort of throwback today. We are going to talk about Treasure Planet. If you don't know what Treasure Planet is, is it a it is a Disney movie that came out in the early 2000s and personally my feelings are that it's very underrated. Um why am I watching Treasure Planet, you may ask? Because I'm home and I have access to Disney Plus and therefore have been watching a lot of old Disney movies because they make me happy. So, the summary of Treasure Planet is the legendary loot of a thousand worlds inspired by an inter... inspires... wow, let me start over. The legendary Loot of a Thousand Worlds inspires an intergalactic treasure hunt when 15-year-old Jim Hawkins is given a map by dying pirate Billy Bones to the greatest pirate trove in the universe, Flint's Trove, and Walt Disney's thrilling animated space adventure, Treasure Planet. The movie is based on one of the greatest adventure stories ever told. Eh, eh, debatable. Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. The film follows Jim's fantastic journey across a parallel universe as a cabin boy aboard a glittering space galleon where he befriends the cook and pirate captain Long John Silver. Through this adventure, we see Jim progress from a troubled youth to a courageous and responsible young man. All right, y'all. I have a couple interesting facts about this movie because I watched this a lot as a kid. Like, my siblings and I watched it a lot. We would, like, quote it back and forth to each other. We thought it was really funny. So watching it as an adult, though, it's been a really long time since I've watched this movie. And watching it as an adult, I found myself really curious about multiple things, not just who the voice actors were, who I would never have cared about. But I was like, I know that person. So in addition to that, I was really struck by, one, the animation and... The storyline, because I have read Treasure Island, and that has also been a really long time, but I vaguely know that plot line, and while this does follow it, the tweaks that Disney creators made to it, I think, really gave a lot of depth to the story, and also, space pirates are just really cool. So, my first interesting fact for you, and it's not an interesting fact, it's just a fact, the movie was released in 2002. It took 10 years to make this movie. So I was curious if that was a long time. And my understanding from some research is that from conception to production, it takes or could take three to seven years for an animated film. I don't know a lot about animation or anything like that. I'm sure if they really wanted to push something out, they could do it in less time. Um... Because there are also a lot of variables that go into movie making. But I would be curious if you know. That's what I kept finding in 10 years sounded like a really big deal. Which I mean it is. That's a very long time for an animated children's movie. Especially when you take into account that this movie cost them $140 million to make. But it only grossed $38 million domestically. So in the States. They sort of made that up with $70 million, uh overseas, but still 
they lost a lot of money on this, which is what I'm using to fuel my theory of the fact that they tried to just sweep it under the rug. Like, I don't know why they would. Like, you should be trying to, like, continue to promote it. Apparently, and I sort of remember this, but they, like, heavily marketed, you know, they did the whole, like, pictures on cereal boxes and TV spots and things like that. But that marketing aspect and why it flopped for a Disney animated film is very interesting. A lot of the speculation is around the fact that it was space. So early 2000s, we didn't have a lot of space movies. It was Star Trek and Star Wars were the big ones. And Star Wars Clone Wars came out in May of that year. Treasure Planet released in like November, I think is what I found. So I personally like the Star Wars Attack of the Clones film. However, those prequels get a lot of hate and people might have had some negative feelings towards space-type movies at the time. That's very possible. Um, and that's kind of my speculation is that putting it in a kid's genre, just it wasn't really appealing to anyone, which doesn't make sense because, like I said, space pirates. But on the topic of space and taking this very classic tale and putting it in space is in relation to the animation. And in order to segue to talking about the animation, um, I did some research because I'm not an artist. I'm not an animator. I don't know anything about it. But I learned that the artists for the film were inspired slash used no, inspired by the Brandywine School of Illustration. I didn't know what that was. Kudos to you if you do. But I had to look it up. And they used this sort of school of art because it was very well known for using warm tones, a lot of color, and it had very storybook-esque illustrations. Um... And they chose this because space, up until this time, and even, I guess, really still now, is depicted as a very cold, dark kind of place. Tin ships, silver medals, basically somewhere you go to die. Um, <laughs> so, lining it up with color was really important to appeal to um, younger audiences and to maintain that very storybook-esque feel. An interesting fact about the School of Art is that Howard Pyle, who kind of came up with it, is known as the father of American illustration. Again, storybook. And he, he was an artist, and he wanted to teach other artists and students, so his school became the Brandywine School of Illustration. Pyle's most familiar works remain to be the image of rakish pirates, tough cowboys, and noble knights. So not only was it full of color and these storybook-esque features in the, in the line work and things like that, but I mean, the man was literally known for his pirate portraits. It just fits perfectly, and I just think that's a really cool fact. I'm going to link some of his artwork in the show notes because it was really cool to compare 
like color choices like treasure planet has a lot of like yellows and warm golds and a lot of his paintings do too so that's just some fun facts for you i am talking about the animation with minimal animation knowledge is because as i was watching it so i had just recently or i have recently like i said watched several old disney movies um which sometimes I go through little spurts and I just watch them. They're happy. Like, but I had just watched Mulan, which came out fairly close to this time. It was in the 90s. So it was before. And that animation is very classically Disney animation that fits a lot of those other same films. And something when I was watching Treasure Planet, I was just like, this is stunning. Like the scenes... If you've seen it, you know, like, there are scenes with the ship in space. So, like, you see this whole, like, galaxy that they're looking out over. And it is beautiful. And the, like, glimmer and the way that the camera was moving, I was like, I don't have any recollection of movies doing this. Like, I was trying to rack my brain. And after I did some research, I found one. But before we talk about that, let me take a quick break. And we will be right back. Welcome back, everyone. Let's talk animation and aesthetic of this movie. I'm going to again say, I'm not an artist, and I don't know anything about animation, but I can research, and that is what I did. So, like I said, the artists for this film were inspired by the Brandywine School of Illustration, so it's very warm colors storybook features and once I read that I was like yes that makes sense there are very noticeable elements of that so another rule that the Disney artists kind of had when they were putting all this together is something called the 70-30 law this basically meant for them that 70% of the film would sport a very traditional look which it does I see moments of like Jim Hawkins, his mom, she in the beginning gives off very, to me, Little Mermaid vibes. Like the way her hair swoops and how big her eyes are and things like that. Those are very telltale of the way their animation normally looks. And then 30% of it was supposed to be very sci-fi. You see this in those scenes that I was talking about where they're showing space or spaceport or things like that. It also, they also applied this rule to the sound effects and the music. I didn't pay a lot of attention to the sound effects, I admit. But the music, for real, they have slips of, or they have Jim's theme, which is the main song, which is by John Resnick, who is the, I think that's how you say his last name, uh, lead man for the Goo Goo Dolls. I used to freaking love that song. I actually still do. I've been listening to it since I've watched the movie. But it's a really good song. But it was very much a pop song in most of this very classical orchestral t- type uh, dramatic music. Um, apparently the 70-30 law also applies to art but for different things. Um, I didn't go too far into that, 
because sometimes when I talk about art, I remember my college art class that I hated with a passion. So I didn't go too deep down that rabbit hole. But they applied that 70-30 law to the artwork and everything else of the film so that it still kind of had that Disney feel, but in space. And then a major accomplishment sort of of this film is a notable aspect of the film animation which contributes to those like sweeping camera quote-unquote movements that I was trying to figure out why they looked weird but also worked and it's because they use something called deep canvas. So this really neat little piece of tech was first notable in Tarzan which they did in 99. It allowed animators to um, create this huge 3D environment and basically move a camera along them and draw 2D animation on top of that. So it creates this very, and frankly astounding, immersive effect which allows for those super cool camera moves. So once I read that it was Tarzan, I was like, Oh, right. So all of the movement of Tarzan down the trees and up and swinging, and the re- that's which is the reason they had to use it. They had to create this environment for him to move in, even though he was 2D. That's what I was seeing, or that's what you're seeing in Treasure Planet when it kind of goes from, you know, a shot on the character and it like swings down the ship and up the bow or into the sails or something like that it was really super cool it took me a long time in my research to grasp this concept for some reason so essentially it just means that they create a 3d environment with like computer graphics so they can draw the 2d character or other setting on top of it it's very interesting it's very cool it does make for some beautiful scenes it throws me off a little once I started kind of looking for those moments so like the map in the movie is this like sphere it's like this gold sphere with a lot of markings on it and sometimes it's super intricate and it's beautiful and sparkly and then other times it's very flat minimal lines and things like that and thinking about it it has a lot of those details when it's in the background so when it is created by computer graphics and is very 3d and it becomes very flat when a character is holding it and you can see the lines and things like that so that was just super cool if you're an animator I would kind of like to like know more about this because now I'm feeling like I want to pay attention to these. I don't know anything about it and I have nothing to contribute to the conversation, but that's just really cool. On on that note, I think it is super interesting to watch, to me, it is interesting to watch some of these movies as an adult because I loved them as a kid. I am, I'm still rather obsessive as an adult when I really like a story or something like that. When I was a kid, it was the same way. We rewatched them all the time. And 
now though I just have this added layer of appreciation like how cool the animation is and oh but in addition to those really cool just not marvels just ingenuity I guess but in addition to that they use really cool animation tricks to tell the story so to show and not tell which I always appreciate in some of the like there are three things that I notice that they use in the animation and the choices that they made to tell this story and they tell you how to feel as an audience and one of the first things which I didn't notice is that Jim's hair gets lighter as the show progresses it's supposed to signify his progression from a bad boy to you know well a good kid (laughs) I I notice that sort of uh, subliminal storytelling in his clothes. He goes from wearing a very dark and black jacket to a tan and loose shirt. And then at the very end, he's wearing a white uniform. So I noticed that, but I did not notice the hair thing. And that's super cool. And then the other two, the next thing would be, so Silver is a cyborg, which is another attempt uh, to make him very space agey but if you watch closely his eye is typically like a yellow gold and it goes to red and that's generally used as a signal of you know watch out back off beware and then captain Amelia, who is one of my favorite characters ever is her coat is a very vivid and bright blue even her eye showed as a little blue and generally in color theory Blue is often used to associate with very positive emotions like trust and stability, which she is very much an embodiment of those features throughout the movie. So those are my contributions to the animation. I am still just tickled by all the cool things I have learned about this movie. And I am super... excited to talk about these characters and the tweaks that they took from the book to the movie. I honestly, I'm gonna leave you with this before we take a quick break. I prefer the changes that they made in this movie. I prefer it to the book. So that's what you're gonna get. Let's take a quick break. I will be right back. Welcome back once again. We're going to talk about one of my favorite things, characters. So most of these characters and their place in the story are pulled directly from Treasure Island. They made a few tweaks, both to make it more space-agey and to kind of um, develop this other storyline a little more. And like I said before the break, I prefer these changes like I prefer the storyline it gives me all the feels honestly I remember reading Treasure Island and not caring at all what happened to anyone but these characters I'm very attached to so one of the changes that they made is Jim is 15 and he's a very troubled teenager as opposed to a very bright-eyed and naive 12 13 year old boy that he is in the book also, which we're going to talk about in a minute, he has this whole added layer of 
daddy issues, which always add to a more interesting storyline. Um, and he still befriends John Silver, who is the baddie in the book and is kind of in the movie. But I think for John Silver, if I recall correctly, he's still very charismatic, but he is not as likable in the book. He also, I think, is part of Flint's crew, which that's not clear what his background is in this movie. Um, like I said, he's more likable in the movie, which is why one, I think, needs to happen for the setup of him being a father figure to Jim, which we'll talk about in a second. And that is why the added character of Mr. Scroop, who's that like spider psycho monster alien thing. Um, that's why he's added to be the like really bad guy. And then the other two two main characters are Dr. Dobbler. He is a parallel character. Thanks to Spark Notes, because I couldn't remember his character from the book at all. He is much more entertaining in the movie. In the book, he's a very vanilla, boring, by the book, kind of rule follower. And in the movie, he's still very upstanding and very practical, but he's obviously provides great com- comedic relief. That is thanks to a lot, thanks a lot to the voice actor. Um, and his interactions with Captain Amelia are obviously very amusing because, you know, they fight like cats and dogs, you know, because he's a dog, she's a cat. If you haven't watched it, jokes are much less funny when I'm sitting here alone and no one can react to them. Anyway, (laughs) um, an interesting aspect I think is also added to the fact that Jim is 15, but Dr. Dobbler tends to follow Jim's lead a lot more than he ever would have in the book because Jim was a 13-year-old boy in the book, like 12 or 13. But the one person that really doesn't follow anyone's lead and is always poised and in charge is Captain Amelia. First of all, Captain Amelia was obviously... In addition, and a big change from the captain of the book, there would not have been a female captain in Treasure Island. But she is the bomb. I used to love her when I was younger. I thought it was she was so sassy. And I thought that I would maybe not think that rewatching it. I thought that maybe her lines and moments would fall a little flat and not be as witty as I remember. Um, I was very wrong. <laughs> I love the decision to make her a feline. I think it offsets um, this dynamic with her and Dr. Dobbler, and she takes on a lot of these masculine traits. She's like a veteran, and she runs the ship, and she's very stern and to the point and respected, and Dr. Dobbler is this dog, and he's kind of bumbly, which I mean, you know, if you have a cat or a dog, you know that your cat is probably doesn't care what you're doing or where you are and definitely runs the house. And if you have a dog, he's just like, hi, hey, you're home. Play with me. So I think that is just, again, very good show and not tell sort of storytelling. Also, she's freaking stylish. 
I want that jacket and her thigh-high boots. Like, yes. So I do appreciate every single one of these changes, the choices in the animation to tell the story and to create these other relationships that didn't exist before. I love them. I think it is a better story. So the one big thing um, story-wise that changed is this added layer of Jim's daddy issues. So Jim develops this relationship with Silver. For the sake of time, I am not going to compare it to the book. I just need time to gush over the character development and the story arc. So like I already mentioned, he has the added layer of daddy issues, which arguably is why he tends to misbehave. His mother can barely keep up with him and keep their in, which is their livelihood, afloat. Um, she's kind of at her wit's end, which is what... Uh, Dr. Dobler sort of uses to convince her to let Jim go with him on this adventure to like build character. Um, Through their conversations and a few glimpses, we do see that Jim is kind-hearted and he's very intelligent, but the big thing is that he lacks discipline. So when he gets on this ship, Captain Amelia assigns him to be a cabin boy to the cook, Mr. Silver. Mr. Silver, as we all know as audience viewers, I mean, if you know the story of Treasure Island, know that this is the pirate captain as well. Um, But very quickly, Silver develops this soft spot for him and just sort of naturally falls into this father figure. And the reason that I think that happens is because Silver provides discipline where Jim has never had any. So... You know, he doesn't just let him run around or, you know, be defiant without um, correction. He gives him work to do and he expects it to be done. He also, though, provides compassion and validation. So, like, he tells him when he does a good job and he validates at multiple times Jim's kind of feelings of that he screws up everything and Jim really does react to that. Arguably, Dr. Dobler, not arguably, but we assume that Dr. Dobler has attempted to sort of be a father figure, but as we've seen, he definitely follows Jim's lead. Silver does not. Silver sets an expectation and expects Jim to follow it. This would be why I mean, Jim has not had that since his father left, which would mean that he would still, because of his nature that has developed to push back against that authority, he does, but he still attempts to do a good job and he still, you can see it, it's precious that he's thrilled, you know, when Silver rewards him or validates him, essentially. Um... The montage of Jim's theme is really where you see all of that comparison to another great show not tell um, that that I'm still here song. So it compares Jim's life as a child with a very absent father and then his father leaving and then currently Silver physically being there and pushing him to be a better person and 
rewarding him and encouraging him and all of that. I think it is a wonderful moment and it's beautiful and it leads to a great like heart to heart where Silver kind of like gets to give him some advice. And so you see a great like Jim is super accepting and willing to take this advice and Silver is kind of like, oh crap, I'm really getting in deep here. All of this makes his betrayal all the more gut-wrenching in the end. Yes, as most adult audiences know, either because we've watched it or we know the story, we know that he's going to betray Jim, but it hurts more because of that relationship, which is why I appreciate these changes. In the end, Silver does still save Jim, which is his character arc. Like, Jim... Obviously, he was going to try to save everyone, but even in the end, you know, they've lost the treasure, the planet is about to explode, you know, Jim ends up trusting Silver. Silver, there's a moment on the ship where they're trying to figure out how they're going to clear the planet before it explodes, and Jim's like, I have an idea, and the one person that immediately is like, what do you need? Let's make it happen, is Silver. And Jim goes along for along with it, and he probably, I would argue, has that courage to go along with it because Silver backing him. In the end, Jim lets him go when he's trying to escape, but everything that he taught him in those months, or however long they were on that ship, he clearly takes with him into his life, and he goes to, you know, whatever space academy they have, I guess, and becomes, you know, some officer and essentially stays on the straight and narrow. You guys can't tell me that's a more satisfying story arc for both of those characters than, I don't even remember how the book ends, but I know it's not this satisfying. Um, I know there are other characters in the story. There's you know, the crazy work for, Fl- like, Ben, who is the character's name in the book and the movie. I know he's there. He's a lot more of just, like, helping to progress the story along, not necessarily contributing to Jim's journey. But to see in the end, they rebuild this life and all the positives that come to it, I just, it gives me the feels. Um, also, also. To back up, that you've got the making of makings of greatness in you speech that Silver gives Jim brings me to tears. It is adorable and, again, just makes it all the more gut-wrenching when you know he's going to betray him. Like, that's probably some of the nicest things that anyone has ever said to Jim. And it hurts my heart. So, on that note, that's all I've got for you guys today. I had a lot of fun rewatching this. I am definitely a big fan and really sad that this movie is so underlooked and underrated. So, if you have never watched it or haven't watched it in a while, you should definitely find a way to go check it out because it is worth watching 
and appreciating the beauty of the animation and the fun um, adventure elements of space pirates in the story arc is really super touching for, I mean, technically a kid's movie. Like, I was kind of tearing up, you guys. No lie. But with that, I will leave you until next week. So, till next time. Bye, guys. If you like what you hear, I greatly appreciate a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps me podcast without a mental.